As we go forward in worship now, we want to attend to God's Word. Our main sermon text for this morning is going to be Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8, through the end of chapter 12. Now again, we're not going to read uh, that whole stretch together, uh, but Davis will come up and read for us Isaiah 10, 22 to 25, and then chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. And fundamentally, I think what we see in these chapters is the message of both God's wrath, his judgment upon sinners, but also the message of salvation, his forgiveness for those who would lean upon him. After that, we're going to look at Nahum 1, verses 2 to 8. Katie will read that for us. That's another word that just reveals to us God's anger and fury against sin. And then from there, we turn to Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 12. Brian will read that for us, where we see the message that God's love for us has actually predated his wrath, that he set us apart from before the foundation of the world. And then finally, in Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, we see the glorious message of the fact that God's wrath and his grace are not at odds with one another, but he actually has grace on those whom his wrath was formerly against. And so as we see these themes of wrath and grace uh, throughout these uh, texts, I just invite you to consider that as we are reading. And so, Davis, if you'd like to come forward now to read for us from Isaiah. Sorry, I forgot to pray for us. Let me pray for us quick. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, just open the eyes of our hearts now to understand your word, God. Um, Lord, we are blind to your truth apart from your spirit working in our hearts. And so, Spirit, come right now. Open up any heart that is closed to your truth, that is closed to your word. Lord, that we may behold you and that we may have hearts of faith toward you. Strengthen me also, I pray, for the preaching of your word. And again, would you grant the, the worship that is faith uh, to everyone who hears your word read and proclaimed right now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 through 25. And then I'll read Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. For though your people, Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will remain. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has, and he has become my salvation. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. 
Bastion and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows, he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Ephesians 1, 3 to 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in, in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Well, as we look this morning at Isaiah chapters 9 to 12, uh, we're actually still in the section that we began last week. And If you'll remember from last week, the section started with the story of Isaiah going to King Ahaz. And the problem that King Ahaz was facing was he had a couple of small nations who were opposed to him. And because he was worried about those small nations attacking him, he was seeking a deal with the great nation of Assyria. And so what Isaiah was doing in going to Ahaz as he was telling Ahaz that he better not trust in Assyria, that he better trust in the Lord, because the Lord is able to deliver where Assyria is not able to deliver. And even though Assyria looked very strong and mighty, and God's power at that moment in time did not look so strong and mighty, 
Isaiah still called Ahaz to trust in the Lord. And that was the main point of the message from a couple weeks ago, is that we also, as God's people, must trust in the Lord for salvation. Even when the Lord's ways don't look as amazing or as wonderful as the ways of the world around us, nevertheless, we must trust in the Lord for salvation. Now, that wasn't the only message that Isaiah was bringing to Ahaz at that moment in time. Again, the chapters that we have before us this week constitute the rest of Isaiah's message to King Ahaz. And the rest of his message was essentially that because you will not trust in the Lord, God's wrath is coming against you. And that God's wrath is also coming against Judah and Syria, the nations that Judah was so worried about. And God's wrath is also coming against Assyria, the nation that Judah thought that it could entrust itself to. And so Isaiah was proclaiming to Ahaz that God's wrath is coming and it will overwhelm every single nation that you presently think is so strong. And yet he also promised Ahaz that there would be a remnant, that God would choose a few And to them, he promised enormous and unimaginable blessing in the time to come. And so Isaiah's message to Ahaz is a message of both wrath and promise, God's judgment and God's grace. Another way to put this same idea of Isaiah's message to Ahaz is Isaiah was just telling Ahaz that because you will not trust God, you will be destroyed but I will replace you with someone who will trust in me. So the message of wrath is a message that Ahaz and his nation and other nations will be destroyed. And the message of grace is that God is not giving up on his people, but he will put someone on the throne who will trust in the Lord. Now, as we look at this passage this morning, there are a number of words from God here that I believe are very hard for modern ears to hear. Mainly messages of God's wrath, of his anger, and his fury against sin. And sometimes the, the text can even turn on a dime. It can talk about God's wrath in one moment, and it can talk about his grace and his mercy the very next moment. And I think that for many unbelievers, if they were to come and read this passage, what they would find is a God who seems to suffer from some sort of personality crisis, who can't make up his mind about whether he wants to condemn his people or whether he wants to save them. They would say that God must be bipolar. Maybe he's just capricious and arbitrary. In other words, when they would come to this text, they would not see a good and gracious God. And so what I want to do in this message primarily this morning is to offer a defense of God's character. And so for the first part of the message, I just want us to see the contrast that the text provides between God's wrath and his mercy. We'll look at the texts that talk about his wrath and then the texts that talk about his mercy. And then in the second half of the message, I want to reconcile God's wrath with his mercy. Now, the reason why we have to really delve into the character of God this morning is because, typical of Isaiah, he does not treat God's wrath and God's mercy in any kind of superficial way. 
part of Isaiah's burden all the way through his book is to show us how all that God does springs from the depths of God's nature. Isaiah just says over and over again in a whole variety of ways that God is not like a human. You see, we humans, we must change our calculations or our approach to things based on circumstances. We have to try to triangulate and think of what's the best way to accomplish our ends. And so we might shift our methods from time to time in order to try to get the best out of a situation. But God is not like man. God never has to triangulate. He never has to adjust his plans based on man's response. God is always able to act purely from the depth of his own character and will. And it is all the earth, it is all mankind that will then bend to God's will. And so when we see messages about God's wrath and about his mercy, we must understand, Isaiah says, that these are not simply responses to human choices, as if God is reacting and humans are the first actors. No, it is exactly the other way around, that this is all God's plan and mankind is reacting to God's choices. God always acts and we humans can only ever react. And so that must mean that God's wrath and God's mercy are not simply, again, God's reaction to our choices, but are actually expressive of the heart of the very nature of God himself. And so that's why this morning I want to undertake this defense of God's character. To say that God's wrath really can coexist with God's mercy and love. That God doesn't need to be bipolar or angry or capricious or arbitrary. Rather, we can see how his wrath and his mercy both spring from the same well in the heart of God. The well of God's love first and foremost, for his own name. And I believe that Isaiah shows that to us in these chapters themselves. So I am going to do my best this morning to simply remain in Isaiah chapters 9 through 12 as we look at these things. And my my prayer, my hope for all this is that if we can really see, if we can behold how God's Judgment and God's love both spring from his heart, both spring from the depths of his character, then it will give us all the more reason to rejoice in the Lord. Because I think so often even we as Christians can get stuck in this mindset where we somehow see God's wrath against us as being primary and we kind of get lucky to like escape his wrath. And what God really wants to do is just be angry with sin. And somehow, even in our own heads and in our own hearts, we have trouble reconciling his love with his wrath. And that deprives us of joy and assurance in the Christian life because we see these two things as polar opposites. And so my hope is that when we see that God's wrath is really simply a subset of his love and that his love for us is primary, then that will give us all the more joy and confidence in our salvation and in the character of the God that we proclaim. You see, the the news of God's forgiveness to rebels, the, the news that God will allow us to escape his wrath, is really the best news in all the world. 
Because God's wrath is the only problem that will exist for all eternity. And so when God says that we are free from his wrath, that is more reason to rejoice than any single earthly thing that could possibly bring us down. And so seeing how God's forgiveness of our sins and welcome into his home forever is part of the fundamental nature of who he is, of his character. It should give us so much joy and confidence in the future because we know that the biggest problem facing all mankind has been taken care of in our behalf. And so as we look at the character of God this morning, I pray that our hearts would just overflow with joy in the forgiveness that God has won. So, Let's continue on now in Isaiah 9 to 12. And again, first, I just want to look at what this passage tells us about both the wrath of God and then what it tells us about the mercy of God. Now, we've already seen in Isaiah to some measure news of the wrath of God, but I think that Isaiah's words in these chapter become the most heated words yet of God's anger and fury at sin. So the very first verse of our text this morning, Isaiah 9 verse 8, says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. So Jacob and Israel, just two different names for the same entity. This is saying that God is proclaiming a word of judgment against Israel. And then if you look down in Isaiah 10 verse 5, it says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. And so after proclaiming woe, after proclaiming judgment upon Israel, then God is going to proclaim judgment upon Assyria. Even though Assyria is his tool of judgment, he is also going to judge them. So these words are against Israel and Assyria. And just listen to some of these expressions of God's anger. Isaiah 9 verse 12. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Then 9, 19 and 21. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. And then 10, 3, and 4. What will you do on the day of punishment in the, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Notice that repeated three times. His anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And then going on to Assyria. Isaiah 10, 5 and 6, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Or Isaiah 10, 16 to 19, Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. 
the glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Going on to Isaiah 10, 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. And then Isaiah 10, 25. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Beloved, if these verses do not make you terrified of the wrath of God, I do not know what will. Again, in verse 19, Isaiah says that the people are like a fuel for the fire. In 10.6, he says, tread them down like the mire of the streets. And in 10.22, he says, though they're like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. Beloved, this is how the Lord treats human beings who have rejected him. He will treat them like branches for fire, like mire in the streets, like sand falling through fingers. This is the wrath of God expressed against those who reject him. Now again, at this point, there are many unbelievers and atheists who would read texts like this. And they would say, yes, all of this is true. And this is precisely why I don't like God. I don't like religious people. And I think religious people are anti-human because they are worshiping this this human-hating God. And I know that even we ourselves can be very uncomfortable with words like these that Isaiah has. But... If you write off these verses and if you deny the wrath of God, then the question is, what do you do with the verses of mercy that we see in the very same text? So here now, these verses of mercy, Isaiah 10, verses 1 and 2, God says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. So here, even though God talks about some human beings being like mire and being like fuel for the fire, here he seems to care about the poor and the fatherless. In the widows. Or Isaiah 10, 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. So God wants people to lean on him. He is not judging them merely to make an end of them, but he wants people to come to know him. Or Isaiah 10, 24 and 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. So God is actually protecting his people from another nation that would wish to do them harm. Or, most glorious of all, consider the great prophecy of Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 9. This is a little bit longer stretch, but it's worth reading. Isaiah 11, 1 to 9. 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with a young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. So, beloved, he will care for the poor of the earth. He will judge with righteousness, with equity, and he will bring about perfect peace in all the earth, where even the animals shall no longer fight against one another. This is the same God who is declaring wrath and fury against all who oppose him. Beloved, we cannot choose between one or the other. We cannot say, I I love God's mercy, but I just don't buy into that idea of God's wrath. God's wrath gives way to his mercy. Indeed, his wrath forms the very need for his mercy. And so we must understand that the same God who declares all this anger, all this fury against those who reject him is the same God who says that he loves the fatherless and the widow is the same God that he says will bring peace upon the whole earth and that he will rescue a people for himself and for his own name. And so the question that I think this text really does pose to us is the question of how is it that these two things can go together? How can we have a God who on the one hand will call some human beings fuel for the fire and mire in the streets? And on the, other, on the other hand, will care for the poor and the fatherless and the widow. I think that Isaiah answers this question for us in a series of three different texts from these chapters. So the first one is Isaiah 10, 12 to 15. The next one is Isaiah 10, 20 to 21. And then the last one in the climax is Isaiah 12, 1 to 6. And so I'm going to take these in order. And my hope is that as we go through these texts, you'll kind of gain increasing clarity about how Isaiah sees the wrath of God and the mercy of God going hand in hand. So the first text that shows us what is going on mainly with just the wrath of God is 10, 12 to 15. Now here, God is speaking specifically of the nation of Assyria. And so starting in verse 12, he says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and all Jerusalem, and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. 
So just notice the the background of this first. So God has used Assyria to do his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. And now that God has finished doing his work through Assyria, the king of Assyria now has this arrogant heart and he has a boastful look in his eyes. And then the following verses describe this boastful look. Verse 13, for he says, By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. And then notice Isaiah's response to this sort of arrogant boasting on the part of the king of Assyria. God says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Do you see what God is saying to the king of Assyria in those verses? God is saying to Assyria, the most powerful nation on earth at the time, that you are simply my axe. You are simply my rod. And if you accomplish great things, it is not because of your wisdom or your might or your understanding. It is because of me working my power through you. And so this shows us, I think, the fundamental reason for why God's wrath is coming against Assyria, and it's the same reason why God's wrath is also coming against the people of Israel. And that is because they set up themselves above God. They boasted as if God were not their God, as if they were not merely tools in God's hands. They started to think of themselves as sufficient, of themselves as God, able to choose their own way and do whatever they wish. In other words, they are setting themselves up as rivals to God. And this is what provokes God's wrath. These people who grow proud, who say, we can do everything ourselves. We ourselves are God. And when people say that, God's wrath quickly comes against them. Now, one way that Isaiah even bolsters this message of his text is, again, he repeats over and over that God cares for the poor and the fatherless and the widow. Now, what is unique about people of that sort? People of that sort are people who, just by their very nature, must recognize that they are not God that they do not have power to rule their own lives. They are at the mercy of others. And so these people who are in humble circumstances do not face the wrath of God. These people who recognize that they are not God, but they sit under the authority of God, they escape the wrath of God. And the opposite of this is, again, this king of Assyria, who even though he was simply a tool in God's hands, boasts as if he is mighty. Now again, the second text that gets us a little closer to seeing how God's wrath and God's mercy go together is Isaiah 10, 20 and 21. That text says, 
In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Now notice how this talks about the purpose that God has in his wrath. When God says that the remnant of Israel and survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, he's talking about they will no more lean on Assyria. As King Ahaz is doing right now, leaning on the king of Assyria for deliverance. And God says, but instead, you will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In other words, God is saying that part of my wrath, part of taking away all these kingdoms, all of these human goods that you can rely on, part of me doing that is, again, not merely for punishment, not merely to wipe you out, but it's also to show you where you truly can rely, that you truly can rely on the Lord. This is why for many ages, Christians have talked about the severe mercy of God. Because sometimes God does come into our lives to give us pain, to strip away things that we enjoy very much and that we love very much. But when God does that, his message to us is not just, I hate you and I am against you. No, his message is the message of Isaiah 10, 20 here, that you will no more lean on these things that you formerly relied on, but you will lean on me. Beloved, it is so often good for us when material goods are stripped away from our lives because it teaches us and it trains us that we really can rely on the Lord. And so in this way, we start to get a glimpse of how God's wrath is not necessarily always opposed to his mercy. Sometimes it is precisely in his wrath that we find mercy. Because he takes away these things from us that we love, that compete with him. That make us think again that we don't need God, that we're okay without him. And so God's wrath comes and he strips them away and we then find how much we need the Lord and how much we truly can rely upon him. And so his motivation for wrath in that instance is not destruction, but it is purification and it is love. The same reason why he will condemn the king of Assyria and the nation of Assyria is a reason why he will welcome a remnant. The king of Assyria would not rely upon God. He relied upon his own wisdom, his own strength. And yet God says, I will have this remnant who will lean upon me, who will not trust in other nations or in other goods or other things, but they will lean wholly upon me, and therefore they escape the wrath of God. Now again, all this comes to a climax in Isaiah 12, where I think we see the ultimate way that God himself reconciles his wrath and his mercy. So let me read all of Isaiah 12, just to give you a sense of the whole, and then we'll go through a few verses at a time. Isaiah 12, starting in verse 1, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. 
Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now, beloved, just first notice the result of God's salvation that we see so clearly here in Isaiah 12. The result of God's salvation that we see is people giving praise and thanks to the Lord. It starts off in verse 1 where it says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. And then it continues on down in verse 3 where it says, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You see here, this is the exact reverse. It is 180 degrees from what the king of Assyria was saying of himself. Whereas the king of Assyria was glorifying his name, he was saying, exalt my name in all the earth. Behold my power in all the earth. The result of God's salvation is that now there is a people who proclaim, exalt God's name in all the earth, proclaim his power among all the peoples. You see, God is getting glory for himself. He is getting glory for his own name. And again, this becomes crystal clear in verse 2. But first, I want to back up and see how verse 1 leads into verse 2. So again, it says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Now, just first notice there how God is on both sides of this equation. God was angry with them. He was the one who had wrath against their God-rejecting, God-denying ways. He was angry. But then it says, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. So the same God who is showing wrath is the same God who is comforting his people. Again, God is the beginning and God is the end. And notice this exclamation that it causes in verse 2. It says, behold, God is my salvation. God is my salvation. So you can see now from God being both the bringer of wrath and the bringer of mercy means that we have no one else to thank for our salvation, no one else we owe for our salvation other than God alone. God himself is our salvation. He is the beginning of our salvation and he is the end of our salvation. He is the one who we had to flee from because of his wrath and he is the one who we flee to because of his comfort. He is all in all. 
And the rest of the verse just says this again. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. Beloved, the purpose of God's wrath and his mercy going hand in hand, going together, is so that God will win this sort of worship from his people. So that we can come into God's presence as we have already done this morning and we can say, God, you are my salvation. It was you who I offended. It was your wrath that was against me. It was you who wanted to wipe me off the face of the earth. And yet then it was you who had mercy and it was you who saved me. You alone are my salvation. And when we give praise to God of this sort, we become precisely the sort of people who again will escape the wrath of God because no more will we be boasting in our own strength saying, you know what? I can be good for myself. I can merit God's favor. I can earn my salvation. I can take care of myself. When we see that God's wrath truly is overwhelming to us, that we cannot escape it in our own strength, And when we see that it is God alone who is offered a way out of his wrath, then we truly see that we are entirely at the mercy of God. We fall entirely into his hands. We have no room for boasting, as Romans 3 says. And all we can do is to put our faith in the Lord. And we can say, God, I know I do not deserve your mercy. I know that your wrath is against me for all of my ungodliness, for all of my wickedness. It is against me rightly so. Your judgments overflow with righteousness, as Isaiah 10 said. And yet at the same time, we can say, but God, I know there is a deeper well. There is a well of salvation that you have also dug for me. And you will draw water from that well for me so that I can be saved. Not through any efforts of my own. Not through anything whatsoever that I could do, but simply by God's mercy. God, you are my salvation. And so, beloved, I urge you this morning that if you do not know the salvation of the Lord, if you have never recognized your own utter helplessness to escape the wrath of God, then recognize your helplessness now and lean upon the only Savior, Jesus Christ, who alone has shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. And beloved, when you turn to him, then you will be able to say, God, you are my salvation. This is not my work. You are great. I am not. I am a wretched sinner. You are a glorious God of mercy. And when we do that, beloved, we need not fear the wrath of God, but we can trust in God as our salvation. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we indeed thank you that salvation is from you from beginning to end. Lord, we thank you for leaving no part for us in the work of salvation. For if you had left any part to us, God, we surely would have ruined it. 
And yet, Lord, even as you proclaimed judgment and wrath against us, so, Lord, now you magnify your name in us by purchasing us for yourself, by forgiving us from all of our sin and causing us to proclaim your goodness, your love, and your mercy. Father, we thank you that your mercy has overwhelmed, has overwhelmed your wrath against us. And we rejoice in that now, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.